0: Have to tell you that I'm feeling very old today. Um, my daughter was a senior, congratulations seniors by the way, she was recognized in the first service and so now I've got a daughter that's now graduated so I think that makes me officially old and I thought it kind of made me old and then this week it was confirmed to both Mike and I, my husband who's gone today, normally up here speaking, um, that I got bifocals. And so that just kind of put another notch on the old checklist. And then um, he's been having a problem with his foot. And so he went to see a doctor, and the doctor told him that he had arthritis in his foot. And so uh, we are officially old people. Um, You know, it wasn't too long, or at least it feels like it wasn't so long ago that I graduated from high school. It's a lot further In the past, than I like to admit sometimes, but this week when I was thinking about some of the things that I used to do in high school and some of those memories and some of the things and adventures that I got to be a part of, I was reminded of a mission trip, my very first mission trip, actually, that I went on as a senior in high school and we went to the big town of Branson that was my first missionary journey. So you guys just thought Mike and I were like, we just kind of came out of the womb and went to Africa. And that's not necessarily how it happened. But my very first mission trip was to Branson. And what we did, it was really very strategic. Um, We went into these campgrounds where people had set up their tents and their RV trailers, um, Falls Creek, different places, and they would stay there instead of staying in a hotel. And they would take their kids, and, you know, the morning time would come around, and the sun's rising, and the birds are chirping, so the kids are awake. Well, we we have very... Good strategy behind all of it. And what we would do is we would go in and do a vacation Bible school in these campground sites, and we would start at 8 o'clock because. Mom and dad are ready for the kids to go out and play. So because mom and dad are on vacation. The kids just didn't get the memo. Mom and dad are wanting to sleep in. So they're wanting to send the kids out. And they can't go anywhere where because Whitewater and Silver Dollar City and all that hasn't opened up yet. Right? So they send the kids out. Hey, yeah, go down to Vacation Bible School. Well, we had crafts and we had games and we had music and we had teaching and all of this. And we used the wordless book. You guys, anybody familiar with the wordless book? You know, you open it up. There's no words. Just pages of red, green, Uh, yellow, white, red, you know, so like the red's supposed to be the blood of Jesus, and the black's supposed to be sin, and white's supposed to be forgiveness. Well, today was gold, and I was the teacher for this day. And so we were teaching about heaven, how the Bible says the streets are paved with gold, which means then that you have to refer to hell, and how God, or in the Bible it talks about how it calls it like a lake of fire. And so I'm a very visual person, in case you can't tell here by the boxes. Many of you are thinking, didn't she teach like three months ago using cardboard boxes? I promise she's not like a fetish or something I've got going on, but I'm a very visual learner. And so what I did is I went to the kids and I said, all right, hell, you know, it describes, it's, it's like, you know, this fire and you know, it's hot and you don't want to be there. You can tell I don't smoke because I can't light the lighter. All right. And so I had the lighter and, uh, I was holding it up for the kids, you know, I'd put my hand here, you know, how close do you think, you know, I want to get to this, you know, no, you don't want to get very close, and so then I had this brilliant idea that I would line up all 35 children, and I would let them come and put their hand over it and feel what hell would be like, and then I let them go and sit back down in their chairs, and I know you're thinking right now, doesn't she teach our children normally on Sunday? Yeah, I do. You should be afraid, very afraid, um, so all the kids go and they sit back down and I ask the magical question. You know what I'm going to ask? How many of you want to follow Jesus and let him be Lord of your life and go to heaven and escape hell? And I know this will shock you, but all 35 kids wanted to follow this path. They wanted to escape hell and go to heaven. Thank God he saved me from my Christianity's stupidity, right? So, um, see, at that age... That's what I thought it was when we go We go on a mission trip and we go and we share our faith, right? And so it's kind of like this. If today I said, this afternoon, about 3 o'clock, we're going to meet up here and we're going to all go out and share our faith together. All three of you would show up late, right? Because there's something about it when somebody says, that we're going to go share our faith, we we get this image in our mind of, of what does that mean, really, to share my faith. And, and we can begin to kind of panic on the inside, and maybe we'll give into going, but we're definitely going to stand behind somebody else who seems to be a little bit more vocal, a little bit more trained in sharing their faith than what I would be in, in sharing my faith. And we don't want to be a part of sharing our faith. But, you know, as I begin to think about it, and as God is be been dealing with me really over the past year and unpacking my poster child image of what I've conjured up faith to be, I've come to the conclusion that the word sharing is not the problem. The word faith is the problem. And faith is one of those words that it's a simple word. But it's also one of those words that when I somebody asked me to define it, I kind of find myself fumbling, trying to find the right word to describe it. Now, if you gave me a multiple choice test and you gave me like A, B, C, and D, I could probably pick out which one is the right answer to describe what faith is. But if you gave me an essay and you said, Okay, I want you to write an essay on why you have faith, I you know, I would I would sit there and I would fumble through it a little bit and And I'd probably start scrolling through some images, you know, like on your iPhone, going through the icons in your brain. Okay, let me see. Where's faith in here? It's somewhere in one of these religious folders, right? And so we get there, we go, okay, I know what faith is. I think it's a verse. I'm not real sure, but I know it's on a plaque hanging up in my grandmother's bathroom. And it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the certainty of things and and It's got this little script, you know, words and numbers. So I think actually it is a verse. Yeah, that's what faith is, Right. And we scroll through a little bit more, trying to conjure, okay, what have we heard about faith? And we go back to Sunday school, or we go back to Vacation Bible School, where the teachers stood up, and they said, okay, I want you to sit in this chair. And they put this chair up on the platform. And they say, okay, faith is like a chair. You know, you just sit in it. You don't really think about it. You don't examine it first. You don't make sure all the screws and nuts and bolts are in there. You just sit in the chair, right? How many of you guys heard that when you were growing up? Anybody hear that? Yeah, see? That's right. And so you're going, okay, that's what faith is. And then... I remember this one time hearing this preacher named Adrian Rogers and he was describing what faith and and I really began to get it then. And he took faith like I've got these boxes kinda look like child building blocks a little bit up here with letters on them, and he took it like an acrostic and he said, Okay, F A I T H Forsaking all I trust him. That's what faith is. Okay. Yeah, okay, I, I get that now. And so it's, it's becoming a little bit deeper. It's becoming a little bit more real in my mind. And as I'm beginning to think and think through verses and think through scriptures, I you know I'm thinking, hey, you know what? I remember there was this preacher one time, and he was preaching about this passage in the book of Hebrews, and, and the whole book or the whole chapter of of eleven, and he was calling it the hall of what faith, right? You've heard it, the hall of faith, because it says in those scriptures that. That by faith, we believe that the universe was created by the word of God. That by faith, Abel offered up a better sacrifice than Cain. That by faith, Enoch, he was taking up and did not see death. That by faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham, he left and went to a land that was unknown. By faith, Sarah, she conceived. By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. And by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob. And by faith, Joseph, he gave instructions on where to bury his bones. And by faith, Moses, he was hidden. And he didn't become like one of the Egyptians. By faith, the Israelites, they left Egypt. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. By faith, Rahab did not perish with others in the wall. And then the writer goes, he says this. He says, what more can I say? Because basically, I'm running out of time, is what the writer in Hebrew says. And he goes on, do you want, do you want me to tell you? About um, Gideon and Samson and David and Samuel. I mean, these men of faith who they conquered kingdoms and they enforced justice. They rallied troops. They shut the mouths of lions. They they quenched the power of fire. They made foreign armies to flee. And then it almost sounds romantic, doesn't it? Kind of has an Indiana Jonesish kind of sound to it. And we're thinking, hey, that you know what? I want some of that. I want that kind of faith. You know the kind of people that you see that their faith is just large? I mean, it just it oozes out of them. And when you see those kind of people, you're thinking, I want, I want to be like that. I want that. Matter of fact, I want that version. Matter of fact, just supersize it while you're at it. Just give me the supersized, gigantic version of what they've got over there. But I've come to realize that there are things that I pray for that when I pray them, I don't really know what I'm about to get you know I confess I like McDonald's anybody anybody with me come on don't be bashful I know I've seen the documentary too okay I like I like McDonald's and I drive up and I think that I want that quarter pounder with cheese large fry and a diet coke just to balance it out you know keep it keep it all even and I inhale it because you don't savor McDonald's you scarf McDonald's and I inhale it and what I inhaled in 3.5 seconds is now going to take me three and a half weeks to burn off the calories that I just consumed so what I thought I wanted I really didn't want in the end there are times that we pray for things that when we pray them we think oh yeah God matter of fact you know Mike's up here preaching and we hear a verse or or maybe we're in our small group or something like that, and and we hear something shared, we're thinking, I want that kind of faith, help my unbelief, enlarge my heart, God, grow my faith. That's, That's the kind of faith that I want. Until we're in the process of the faith. And I will tell you this, and this is what I've learned over the last year of my life, is I love God, and I love faith, and I hate the process of it. And that is where God has had me over this past year in my life. So everything that I'm about to tell you now is really just an overflow of what God has been unpacking my poster child version, some neat sit on a shelf, don't touch, but follow me kind of perfect faith. And he's been unpacking it, rearranging it, where sometimes it's been completely identifiable, but that's what it was. And he's been rebuilding it in my life. If you'll turn to Psalm chapter 40, I want to look at three verses. We're going to unpack these verses and dissect them to help us get a better understanding of what that faith is. And I told you that I'm a very visual person. And so we're going to use these boxes to help us understand and get a better definition. But before we jump into that, I want to read these verses so you know where we're coming from. Psalm 41 through three, three says, I waited patiently For the Lord, we just sang about that. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. I love these verses. And I've been reading them day after day after day. Well, in doing that, what I did is I thought, you know, I really need to explore the guy who wrote these verses. And so I began to go through the book of 1 Samuel, and I began to read about David's life, the very guy who wrote this scripture and wrote these words right here. And I began to just kind of unpack his life and what his life story might look like. So before we go further, I want you to get a glimpse of the guy's life his heart and his faith and what was being built into him and how it was being built into him by unpacking his life story. A life story is just kind of those circumstances and events that take place in our life. They make up who we are. They make up how we act. They make up what we believe. They make up what we think. Well, David, he was this guy who was the youngest of eight boys in this home. And he was born in a time when the political system in Israel had completely been changed. Israel, for hundreds of years, had never had a king. But now God had given them over to what they desired and what they wanted. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you a king. Here he is. His name is Saul. Well, Saul did not follow after God. Matter of fact, you look at him, he was tall. He looked strong. He stood above the rest, but he was a twinkie. And when you put pressure on him, and when you squeezed him, what oozed out of him was his own self-pride, his own desire for notoriety, disobedience. And he did not walk the ways of God. And God said to Samuel, the man who had anointed Saul to be king, he said, I have rejected Saul. Matter of fact, I am sorry that I made him king. This grieved Samuel. I mean, he became angry. He cried all night. God said, how long are you going to grieve Samuel? Listen to me. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to get your little flask that you put oil in, put oil in it, and I want you to journey, and I want you to go to Jesse's house. And at Jesse's house, among those boys, I will appoint who I want to be king. So Samuel journeys, and he goes to Jesse's house. And when he arrives and he gets there, he tells Jesse to bring all of his sons before him and for them to prepare their heart that they're going to worship together and sacrifice together. So as all the boys are piling in and they're walking before Samuel, he sees Eliab the oldest son, he was strong, he was handsome, and Samuel immediately thought, this is the guy. I mean, don't we do that? I mean, if God worked the, that way the first time when he chose Saul, wouldn't he work the second way and the same way twice? I mean, but God isn't in the stereotyping business, and sometimes, uh, that, you know what, that's another sermon for another day. Okay, well, well, I'll not chase that rabbit. So he sees Eliab, all right? He says, this is the guy, and God says, no, 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 Samuel, we need to track here at t- 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 together. You and I don't think the same, don't look at the outward appearance i don't look at the outward appearance i'm looking at the heart so the second brother passes by benadab nope the third brother passes by nope not the guy seven boys pass before samuel none of them are the guy samuel is mind boggled i mean is what i mean none of these are the guy jesse don't you have any other sons is this it Jesse says, Well, you know, I've got I've got another, you know, kid. He's out in the field taking care of sheep. In other words, he's not kingly material. David was overlooked, and his abilities were overlooked by his own father. Well, Samuel says, You know what? I want you to bring him before us. We're not gonna we're not gonna sit down until you do. And so when David comes, immediately Samuel knows this is the guy. And he anoints him to be king over all of Israel. And in first Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, it says. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon David that day and never left him. Party, lol. Now what do you do? Well, Samuel leaves. He goes back. And David, he goes and he gets a great big desk with a new nameplate that says King David. And he sets up a website, a new blog site, and a Facebook account, and a tweet account. And he says, hey, I am king over all of Israel, right? No, that's not what happened. You know where he went? back out in the field, doing the same unknown job, being faithful to the same obscure task that he had once done. He went back out being a shepherd, what God had equipped him to do. Well, in the meantime, Saul, who still is king, It says that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him, and an evil spirit came upon him, and he was being tormented. So this guy around Saul says, hey, you know what we need to do? He has this really brilliant idea, but listen to the creativity of God in this, okay? Here's what we're going to do. We need to find a guy who can come and soothe Saul with music. And somebody pipes up and says, hey, there's this guy who's the son of Jesse, and I heard that he's really good and talented at playing music, and the favor of the Lord is with him. How creative is that of God? to put these two things together. And so they call David and he goes and he begins to play music for Saul and his, to soothe him and his soul. And he's going back and forth now. He's going back and forth between the field and he's going to soothe Saul. And he's in the field and he's going to soothe Saul. Well, one day when he's in the field, his father says, Hey, David, I want you to get your stuff together. I want you to take a snack. I want you to go check on your three older brothers that are out fighting their soldiers in, in Saul's kingdom. I want you to go check on them and bring word back to me. So David gets his things together and he goes out and he can hear the battle cry off in the distance. And it says that he dropped the baggage, he dropped everything, and he ran to see what was going on. And when he arrives, there's a 40-day standoff between the Philistines and the Israelite army. And the Philistines had challenged Israel to a one-on-one duel, but nobody in Israel was manning up to face this 9-foot, 9-inch guy called Goliath. And Goliath was tormenting the army of Israel. And David arrives on the scene and he says, Who is this guy? Who is this guy that dares to make fun of the king? Who is this guy who dares to make fun of the armies of the Lord? I'll take him. Well, his brother is there, Eliab, who I think is still a little bit bitter and jealous and angry because he wasn't anointed to be king. He pipes up and he says, David, what do you think you're doing? David turns to him and he says, what? What have, you, what have I done now? And David does not listen to the voice of discouragement. Instead, he still goes on and he proclaims what he knows to be true. Who is this guy that dares demean our God? Well, the word gets back to Saul, what David continues to say. And he says, I want to I see David bring him before me. I want to hear this myself. So they bring David before Saul. And David says, listen, Saul, let me tell, let me tell you something. Here's the story. I have fought before. I've, I've been delivered. God delivered me from the paw of the bear." He delivered me from the paw of a lion, and he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine as well. And so what they do is they take Saul's armor and they try to make David just like one of them. They give him the same tools. So they put on the armor and he's walking around and he's he's thinking, this is not the way I roll. This, this is not the way I have... God has never worked this way like this. This is not the way I've done it. I just always use this little bitty stick with a rubber band attached to it and a few pebbles. That's how God has used me. So he picks up his slingshot and he goes... This is my favorite part. He runs out to meet Goliath. I mean, he's so excited that when he calculates, what he does, what he does is he doesn't calculate and he goes, Oh! I'm a small guy, and that's a big guy. I'm not sure I can win. What he does is he looks at the situation, and he calculates it out, and he says, you are a small guy, and I serve a big God." And he runs out, and he meets Goliath, and Goliath says, what? You think of a dog? You sent a boy out here with a stick to fight? And David looks at him, and he says, I come to you in the name of the Lord. You come with a sword, with a javelin, and spear, But I come to you in the name of the Lord, and he will deliver you over us to this day, and you will be crushed. Well, you know how the story goes, right? So David kills Goliath, right? Happy ending. Let's all pack up and go home. Well, Saul is just thrilled, thrilled that David has now defeated the Philistine army, and they're running for their life, and he's all now buddy-buddy with David. Hey, you can be a part of my kingdom. Hey, you can be a part of my court. Hey, you come and be my armor bearer. And he is loving David. And then they arrive in the city and Saul can hear in the distance people singing. Saul, he's killed thousands. He's killed thousands. And they're singing Saul's praises. And then he hears David. He's killed tens of thousands. And the people David had become popular among. And they are now loving David and looking away from Saul. Well, Saul, who had once now taken David in and loved him and accepted him and made him a part, is now jealous and angry so much that when David is now playing music for him, it says that twice that Saul picked up a spear to try to kill David. Well, David had become best friends with Jonathan, Saul's son, one of the best friendship stories that there is in all of the scripture. And he goes to Jonathan, he says, hey, look, I think your dad is trying to kill me. Well, Jonathan, he's not really sure about this, so they devised this scheme and to find out whether it's really true. But when it's unveiled and when it's revealed, Saul was after David. So David took off. He left everything, left his family, left the popularity, left his best friend. He's now running. He's alone. He's hungry. He goes to an altar, eats the stale old bread from, from the worship altar. He's isolated and he's ending up in a cave. The very place, that many of the psalms that we read, that we memorize, that we've written songs to, are written from the crucible of the cave. And what we're going to do is we're going to take where David is, and we're going to unpack our own faith, and to see what it looks like whenever we're finished with it, okay? All right, so here we go. The very first thing that I want you to see is that David, where is he? In Psalms chapter 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me, heard my cry. He drew me out of the what? Yeah, out of the mire, out of the pit. You know where he was? He had hit the bottom. His faith is completely being rearranged. So we're going to move that H over here. He had hit the bottom. You know what it is to be in the pit, right? You've all been there. We've all been there. No one is excluded from the pit. And when we nosedive and we hit the bottom of this pit, what happens to us is this. We begin to lose our security, stability, our sanity, our safety. We might feel like we're going to lose it emotionally, mentally, spiritually. We feel dry, dark, depressed, despised, disdained, disorganized, disoriented. We feel weary and wounded. We feel overlooked, overworked, overstressed. We feel unable, undone, unforgiving. We feel broken and bitter and ashamed and shattered and angry. Any takers of wanting to be there in that place, Anybody want to take that prayer back about faith right now? I don't, I don't want to, I'm not sure I want that faith but that's the first process is hitting the bottom of the pit let me tell you this the pit is not a bad place to be say that with me the pit is not a bad place to be this is the place where God begins to reposition and to rearrange places in your soul God is at work the place or the pit is not a bad place place to be yet david is there he's nosedive into it he's in the miry bog in the in the clay in the pit of destruction the pit is not a bad place to be the thing is about it though is even though it's not a bad place to be we all pretend like we're never there right i mean we can say that we hit the bottom maybe we just need to call this h hell Because we feel like we're there, but we never want anybody to know. Instead, we're just all angelic and heavenly about things, okay? Let me me use this as an example. My thumb right here, I know that you're wanting to know. What happened to your thumb? Go ahead and ask me. I am so glad you asked. You see, what happened is back in January, actually, I had this little accident. I know you want to know what happened, so go ahead and ask me. Thank you for asking. See, I got kicked, and I'm going to stop there. That kind of leaves your imagination rolling, doesn't it? Maybe that's not a good place to stop. But see, what happened was I got injured, and I was hurt, but I didn't want anybody to know because I knew what I could, I could assess it myself. I knew what the doctors were going to say. It's only sprain. It's damn it, or it's just you know it's sprain. It's jam. Here's the expensive bill. Thank you very much. Right? If I went to the doctor, but see, not only did I not want to have to pay the cost of it. I also didn't want anybody to know, because it actually happened this morning. Somebody said, Lori, what did you do to your hand? And I said, well, I got kicked in taekwondo. And you know what they did? They laughed. Yeah, exactly. Thank you very much. They laughed at me for that, because I know what they're thinking. They're thinking, you're 42, and you're playing a 10-year-old sport. Hello, right? So I didn't want anybody to know, because I knew what would be going through their mind. And also, listen to this. In the six months prior to getting my thumb kicked, I had had three other injuries. I know. Go ahead and laugh. It's all right. I had had three other injuries. So in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm just going to go Walgreens. I can't move it. I can't hold a coffee cup. I can't even pull up my own pants. But I don't want anybody to know that I'm broken and I'm hurt and I need help. So I'm going to cover it up. When I'm, you know, at home and I'll just kind of heal myself, but when I'm out in public, I'm going to take it off and I'll just, you know, limp along and try not to use my left hand. But in that process now, healing didn't take place correctly. So now I've got to wear this thing for like four weeks and then we'll talk about surgery after that. Because I didn't want anybody to know I needed help. I was broken. And we hit that place of the pit. And even though everybody experiences it, we all pretend like we're never there. The second thing I want you to see that David did was this. Is we need to think up. In the process of the pit, when we hit the bottom, we need to think up. What did David do in verse 1? Listen, he waited patiently for me. He inclined to me. He heard my cry he heard my cry listen to the words in psalm 142 let me read these they'll be up on the screen you can just follow along with my voice i cry out loud to the lord with my voice i plead for mercy to the lord i pour out my complaint before him i tell my trouble before him when my spirit faints within me you know my ways and the path where i walk they've hidden a trap for me look to the right and see there's not one who takes notice of me No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. See, when we hit the bottom, when we nosedive, when we tank, where what happens is we begin to flail and we begin to wrestle. And what God is trying to accomplish is not a wrestling match, but he really wants us to find a place of rest. And so what we do is we begin to look around at the pit that we're in and we see the darkness and we see everything crowding in around us. and we begin to feel even a little bit claustrophobic. And the muck and the mire and the water is beginning to rise up to about our neck. And then what is the most natural thing you can do when the water is rising up to here? It's to hold your head up, right? Because that's where the oxygen is. So when things begin to rise up around us, what we have to do is quit looking horizontally and begin to look vertically where the light is, where the oxygen is, and where God is at work. See, if you don't believe me that God's at work, well, actually, let me me do it this way. I want you to think of a circumstance that you're in that you you don't like it. Maybe you've been in the past, maybe you're in it now. I want you to think of that circumstance. You got it? Now I want you to say after me, God is at work in that. Now I want you to think of that person in your life that's causing you problems or pain or issues. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your child. And I want you to maybe it's just flat out your enemy. And I want you to say this with me. God is at work in them. Now I want you to think of all the feelings, all the thoughts, whether they're right or they're wrong, rational or irrational, that you have when you think about those circumstances or when you think about that person. And I want you to say this with me. God is at work in me. You see, when David cried out to the Lord, what did God do? It says that he inclined to me. He leaned in to me. He bent my way. He showed favor my way. The Lord heard my cry. You see, what happens is that crying out loud, I'm not sure what happens from crib to adult, but it's only natural for a one-year-old who's in a crib to cry out for their mom or dad whenever they're in pain or they're hurting. And then who comes toddling along when the baby's crying out? Okay, now I know you let them cry sometimes longer than they're supposed to, but eventually you go and you get them out of their crib, right? Because you can't stand the annoying cry anymore? Well, maybe. But because you love them, because they are yours. And when David cried out to God, he was his. He had been anointed by God. And God inclined himself to David, just like a parent would a child that's crying out. The thing about this is, is if God is at work, then I'm going to take this eye over here. The third thing is you have to initiate trust. Now, this isn't even looking like faith anymore, is it? It's not a little neat package of it anymore. I want you to look at this verse. I want you to see how David waited in verse 1. Are you ready? I waited, how? Say it again. I waited patiently. Can I just confess that, I hate that word. It goes against everything in my personality to wait, to be patient. Patience says, I wait on God. But I operate in my personality, I operate in here and now. Okay? Okay. Patience says, if I move too soon, I might miss God, but in my personality, it just feels like I'm sitting around twiddling my thumbs in a mess, and I really don't want to stay there. Patience says, I'm watching for God, but in my personality, I'm thinking, you know what, I can handle things myself. Patience says, I rest in God. I, you know what, I just, I just have to say, I can't be still long enough for that. You guys know what I'm saying, Right? Waiting is one thing. Waiting patiently is something else. But waiting patiently is this. When we are waiting patiently for God, it becomes a place of being an incubator for our soul. And the thing about an incubator is this. Is the humidity and the temperature cannot be disturbed. It has to be calm. It has to be the same. It has to be balanced. And when we initiate trust, when we're thinking up, when we initiate trust with God, our soul begins to become more calm because we have relinquished what we thought was truth, that I have my life under control. And we realize I don't have my life under control. And we begin to trust God in God's economy. Waiting is an investment in the American culture. Do we know how to wait? I'm not sure we know how to wait. I mean, we have fast food drive throughs. We have RSS feeds. We have 3G, almost 4G, praise God, right? Because if you remember the days of dial up, which weren't too long ago, like 10 years ago, where you got the right, remember that? I know it brings nightmares. And you're thinking connect, connect, connect already. We don't want to wait. We're not accustomed to waiting. We do not like waiting. I read a quote this week by Chuck Swindoll. It says this, when you wait, your situation may not change, but you will. In fact, you may discover that the reason for waiting was all for your benefit because you're, listen, you're the one who needed to change. God hadn't forgot that he was at work in Israel, but God was at work in David's life too. He was busy rearranging his soul, making his whole heart a man who was after him. When we trust God, then we learn to A, anticipate God. Can we unpack those verses again? I hope we haven't read them too much for you. You ready? We've read them enough. You probably already have them memorized. Listen to this, and in your mind, I want you to, like, draw a line. I want you to draw a line and put what David did, and then I want you to draw a place over here and put what God did. Okay? Are you ready? Listen. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He drew me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Isn't that cool? I mean, when you're in a pit, we think there's no possible way that we can get out of here. It is impossible. It is impassable. And what God is wanting to do is bring us to the place where we are anticipating him to work. To let go of the situation. To be at rest with him. You see, we learn a new thing about salvation in this place. Salvation is a word that I thought was used only when I came to know Christ. But I have learned that God is in the business of redeeming, restoring, renewing, and reclaiming every place, every position, every pain, every part of my past. He is in the business of saving me there. Salvation is no longer just a beginning word where you start your faith with Christ. It's a beginning in all the process in between. See, there's not a line, like get in line and take a number and wait for God to show up and work. He'll get to you when he gets around to it. He is at work, and he's in the process right now of reclaiming your soul, not ruining it, of redeeming it, not destroying it, of renewing it. Because he wants your whole heart. Now listen, I'm gonna give you this little b thing because I just think this is great. While Samuel or why David was in the cave, there's a verse in first Samuel. That would have been really cool. That would have been like my fifth accident had I tripped over that rug in like seven months. Okay. Wow. While David was in the cave, first Samuel twenty-two two says this. It says David was in the cave. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became the captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Who knew? Who knew that the cave would be the training ground for a king? Who knew that the cave would be a training ground for God's army that he would raise up? David didn't go looking for him. He was in a pit all of himself. But who came to him? People who were broken distressed, bitter in soul. You see what happened in verse 3? He says this at 40. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Now listen to the result. When you're in the pit, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Many will, amen? Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. You see, what happens is God then takes this, and now our faith is beginning to look a little bit more like faith, right? It is spelled correctly, isn't it? Okay, good. That would be really bad. All right. And so F, we freely tell. Guess where we're back? We're back at the beginning. That place where somebody says, hey, I want you to go out and share your faith. And you're thinking, I can't do that. God God is saying is, listen, I've put a new song in your heart. He put a new song in David's heart. But I want you to listen to the words that he writes in verses 9 and verse 10 about this song. As the band comes up, listen to these words. Psalm 40, verses 9 and 10. And I want you to see, if you don't hear some of the same song that we heard unpacked in David's life story, listen to these. I have told the glad news of what? Deliverance. I've told them the good news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O oh Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness, of your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. We hear him talk about deliverance. Haven't we heard that once before? Didn't we hear that at the beginning of his life story where he was talking about deliverance? Didn't he say to Saul, God delivered me from the paw, of the lion, and from the bear, and he will deliver me from Goliath as well. He's already sung the song about deliverance, but he's singing it again in a fresh new way from places in his soul that God is at work, and that God is redeeming. See, you can only sing amazing grace if you've experienced grace that's amazing, right? You can only sing, as we sang earlier, your love never fails, if you've been in a place where you've experienced God's love that never fails. You can only sing, he works all things together for my good, if you've been in a place where you've experienced where he worked all things together for your good. See, this is faith when we unpack it. We kind of have to look at it backwards. So if I asked you, why do you have faith? I hope that you're not sitting on the couch of your soul and regurgitating off some religious words to describe what faith is, but that you've been on a journey in your heart that God has taken you to that these words, these places have deeply penetrated you because from that place is where your faith is built and from that place is where you share your faith. God, I thank you that you do not stop working in our life. God, I thank you that when we hit the bottom, you have not just left us there, but God, your very presence is even in the pit where we are God I thank you that we can trust you and God we choose to trust God we recognize that it's a choice that we get to make God help us to anticipate to see uncover our eyes to see the work that you're doing in us and around us and then God help us to tell our story of places sickness that you have healed, of anger that you have made calm, of fear that you have given courage. God, places that can only be explained by telling your story. God, we claim the verse in Psalm 66, 16 that says, come and hear and let me tell you what he has done for my soul. God, thank you that you are at work.